If you compare the treatment of, of mental illness with the treatment of physical illness, um, uh, if you compare mental health care to oncology, cardiology, infectious disease, um, all those areas of medicine have made enormous strides in uh, extending people's lifespan, reducing human suffering. You cannot say that about mental health care or psychiatry. The, the tools that they have are really rudimentary. They address symptoms for the most part. The drugs that they use have, um, have really um, difficult side effects for people. People don't like taking them. And here you have the potential of a completely different paradigm where you're not administering a drug, a toxic drug every day. You're administering an effect in experience um, that this, this one administration of a drug gives you. And it is that experience that is not just relieving symptoms, but in many cases addressing fundamental causes. Um, that's a really big deal. Hi, my name is Rongan Chasti, GP, television presenter, and author of the best-selling books, The Stress Solution and The Four Pillar Plan. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people, both within as well as outside the health space, to hopefully inspire you, as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier, because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of my Feel Better, Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chatterjee and I am your host. I have been so excited about releasing today's episode ever since I recorded it a few weeks back when I was down in London. Today's guest is someone who I have admired for many years, the one and only Michael Pollan. Michael is probably regarded as one of the world's premier authors with multiple New York Times bestsellers to his name. In fact, Time Magazine has previously named him as one of the top 100 most influential people in the world. He has written many brilliant books on food, including The Omnivore's Dilemma and In Defense of Food, but more recently has turned his attention to a different topic in his latest book, How to Change Your Mind. I believe that this book will go down as one of the most important books of the last decade, and in it... Michael brings the exciting science of psychedelic drugs into the mainstream consciousness. Now, some of you may be asking yourself, why on earth am I doing a podcast on psychedelic drugs? And if you are starting out as a skeptic, I would highly encourage that you listen on with an open and inquisitive mind, and I think you will be pleasantly surprised by what you hear. Long before they gained a bad reputation, it seemed to researchers, scientists, and doctors as though psychedelics were going to be the new wonder drugs for mental illness. They promised to treat conditions like alcoholism, depression, and anxiety without the side effects associated with conventional drugs. But unfortunately, in the 1960s, there was a backlash against the counterculture who had embraced psychedelics and all further research was banned. Now, Decades later, the world is in the grip of a mental health crisis, but thankfully there is a glimmer of hope. Research has recently begun again on the amazing potential of drugs such as LSD 
and psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. On this week's podcast, Michael and I take a deep dive into this extraordinary world. We explore the remarkable history of psychedelics, the findings of the current research in this area, and Michael shares his own personal experiences with psychedelics under the guidance of therapists. Now, whilst larger scale studies are still needed, we talk about how psychedelic drug therapy could potentially change the way healthcare is delivered for mental illnesses, potentially meaning a resolution of not only symptoms for patients, but also in many cases, the fundamental root causes. Finally, we discuss the potential wider use of psychedelics as a tool for social change. This really is a gripping and eye-opening conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Before we get started, I do need to give a quick shout out to the sponsors of today's episode who are essential in order for me to put out weekly episodes like this one. I'm delighted to announce that my favorite meditation app, Calm, are one of the sponsors of today's show. As many of you will know from listening to previous podcasts and reading my books, I think that meditation is one of the most impactful things that we can do for our health. It can help our moods, our sleep quality, reduce feelings of anxiety, and even enhance productivity. But many of us find meditation super tricky, as did I. Calm is a meditation app that makes meditation easy. All you have to do is load up the app and play the meditation of your choice. I start most mornings with a calm meditation. And in my latest book, The Stress Solution, I wrote about the three M's that a well-structured morning routine should contain. The first M is mindfulness. And I managed to tick that off by doing a meditation on the Calm app as soon as I wake up. If you have been thinking about trying meditation, or if you've tried before, but have fallen off the wagon, I would highly encourage you to check out the Calm app. Right now, listeners to my podcast get 25% off a Calm premium subscription. That's calm.com forward slash live more. 40 million people have downloaded Calm so far. Find out why at calm.com forward slash live more. Athletic Greens continue their long-term support of my podcast. I absolutely prefer that people get all of their nutrition from foods, but for some of us, this is not always possible. Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. So if you are looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com, forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So Michael, welcome to the Feel Better Live More podcast. Thank you, Rangan. I've got to say, since this has been in the diary, maybe about two months uh, since this was in the diary, I have been so excited about having the opportunity to talk to you. So glad we managed to um, get a mutually agreeable time to get this sorted. Um, There's so much to cover today, but I guess where I wanted to start is with food, because the first time I came across your work was back in 2013. I was in America 
uh, it was a conference on food and you were being interviewed on stage and I was blown away by what you were saying, by the uh, insight you gave on foods. And I went out to that conference, I bought three of your books straight away outside at the bookstore and, and started to devour them on the plane back. So, you know, my my initial foray into the world of Michael Pollan was all around foods. And you have written probably what is regarded as seven of the most seminal words ever written on foods, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And I'm just wondering, you know, we're, here, we're sitting here in 2019. I can't remember when it was exactly you wrote those words. But do you... 2008 or seven, I think. Right, so over 10 years ago. Yeah. Do you still stand by those words? Do you think they still have the same relevance today as they did then? And also as a writer, I would love to understand... When you came up with those seven words, do you remember where you were? Did you know at the time, I've got it, I've absolutely nailed it in those seven words? Or was it something that just grew after that? Well, to answer your first question, uh, there is nothing I would change. I've thought about it. Um, and uh, I think that advice holds up pretty well. Um, I mean, it's pretty broad. Uh but the the advice to eat food, by which I meant real whole food and not edible, what I call edible food-like substances, which is a lot of what passes for food in the supermarket these days, ultra-processed foods of various kinds. I mean, the evidence in favor of that and against processed food has never been stronger. Uh, and there have been you know, studies recently that really drive home the point that the degree of processing uh, really has a, a huge bearing on the healthfulness of food and, and uh, whether you uh, whether you put on weight or not. Um, that processed foods, uh, even when they have the same amount of calories, fiber, sugar in them, uh, people tend to not get full on them and to eat more of them. And um, so that part, it definitely, um, mostly plants. Um, you know, the word mostly is probably the most controversial of those seven. It's <laughs> It's pissed off vegetarians and it's pissed off carnivores equally. But I was trying to be reasonable. There's, you know, there's no health objection to meat per se. It's nutritious food, but we're eating too much of it and we're pushing vegetables off the plate by doing so. And we, we know, and we know more now than 10 years ago, that vegetables have all sorts of protective qualities and uh, are very good for us. Um, the jury's still out on meat, per se, whether it has health problems. There may be some issues with it. Um, from an environmental point of view, you know, we could go more radical and say no meat. Um, but from a health point of view, I think mostly is still the kind of sane, um, you know, reasonable approach um, to basically make meat a flavoring, make it an occasional thing. Thing. Um, but a plant-based diet is one of the things we're most sure of is, is, a, is a route to, uh, to healthy eating. And not too much is obvious. I mean, you, you know. So in, in crafting those seven words, um, I do remember it. I was writing an article called Unhappy Meals for the New York Times uh, magazine. They had asked me, after Omnivore's Dilemma came out, this was my first full-scale, full-dress book on food in 2006. Uh, and that book dealt with the food system, and that was my deep dive into how we produce uh, beef and um, chicken and the whole system and how it worked and, and, and what was what was screwed up about it, basically, uh, and also presenting some very positive models of ways to grow food, uh, organic and beyond organic. Um, 
my editor said, well, you didn't really deal with nutrition in that. And, and the, the reader really, you know, fine about the environmental ethics of food. Um, but they really want to know what they should eat for their own health. So would you write us a big cover story? And that became In Defense of Food. Um, and I was, so I did this deep dive into nutrition research. I read paper after paper. I talked to nutritionists, public health advocates. I did everything I could to master this subject and bring a fresh eye to it. And, um, and when I was sitting down to write and I was a little bit overwhelmed by the mass of information and all the disagreements, are eggs good for you or eggs bad for you? You know, there's just so much static out there and so much bad research out there. Um, that I was like, well, what is, can I boil this down? And I sat there and I wrote for the very first sentence of the article, eat food. That seems to be the bottom line, eat real food. And then I thought, well, I have to elaborate that a little bit because <laughs> you, you could eat too much food. So eat food, not too much. Um, and then, well, this meat, vegetable thing, this really does matter. Um, and that, you know, better off with a plant-based diet, but there's no argument that you have to be vegan or vegetarian for your health. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with meat per se. So eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And it was the very first line of the article. And then I thought to myself, wow, you've given it all away, right? On. You have another 8,000 words to write. <laughs> <laughs> and um, And so the rest of the article is backing into that. Uh, and how did I arrive there? And, and, um, uh, and that then became the beginning of the book. Um, wow. So it's one of those things that, you know, you're not supposed to give away the punchline at the <laughs> beginning of the joke. But I decided in this case to cut through the, the miasma, the confusion. I just had to deliver it. And um, uh, so anyway, that's, yeah, those are, I guess, the most famous words I've, I've written. Uh, I hope I can improve on them at some point. Um, well, I, I think they still stand the test of time. And particularly today where... There's probably never been, certainly from what I can tell, there's never been this level of disharmony around the conversation around food. People are, you know, entrenched in their separate camps and, you know, it's quite toxic, actually, some of the conversations oh, yeah. that happen. And yeah. I really think... It's ideological that, at this point and people are, it's about their identity. Yeah. And once you start associating, you know, your position on dietary issues with your identity, you're going to be, you know, inflexible and not be able to hear anything that doesn't agree. Um, and I, you know, I was also trying to kind of transcend the nutrient wars, because that's yeah. really what a lot of, you know, we fight over good and bad nutrients. And so it was very important to me to phrase that in terms of food and, and move the conversation away from nutrients to food. Um, because humans don't eat nutrients, we eat food. And scientists need to understand nutrients to do experiments, obviously, but we don't. Um, and uh, for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, we've been eating food. It's only in the last hundred or so that we eat nutrients. And when we think about the omega-3s in our food or the vitamin C or the fiber and, and that reductive approach, I think, has gotten us into trouble because it tends to favor the processors. Yeah. They always can adjust nutrients up and down, whatever the fad is. You know, they can add fiber to things. They can take out fat. Um and it makes their food appear healthier than real food, which, of course, can't change its stripes as easily. I mean, the avocado is a great example. Um, <laughs> the poor avocado, you know, when we went out, when we went on this 
low fat or no fat binge was neglected completely um, because it's relative for a vegetable. It's very relatively fatty. Um, and then suddenly monounsaturated fats were, were a good kind of fat and the avocado came back. And now I think it's actually in trouble again. So I feel for the avocado, which can't re-engineer itself. But that, that's why I think those seven words have stood the test of time because by and large, no matter what dietary camp you fit into, by and large, I think eating real foods, uh, not too much, mostly plants. I think vegetables are regarded in most cultures, even, you know, paleo. You need to talk to someone like Lauren Cordain. A lot of the early work from the, I was familiar with is talking about, you know, maybe your diet, 70, 80% is actually plant-based. Yeah. But yes, they would have some wild meats and mm -hmm. animal protein in there as well. So I think it's consistent with many different dietary tribes. I think it, it helps to unify people. And I've got to say on some level, it's probably been an inspiration to me in terms of how I've described food in my first two books. So you know, I have to thank you for that. Um, I want to move on from food to your new work, Michael, because mm -hmm. you ha you have this reputation around the world as one of the sort of um, most influential food writers, yet your new book, How to Change Your Minds, The New Science of Psychedelics, appears superficially at least to have nothing to do with foods. How do you get from writing about food to writing about, to, to writing about psychedelics? Yeah, it seems like quite a, a you know, right-angle turn, but um, if you go back a little bit and look at the work I was doing before food, my, my passion as a writer is about nature and our engagement with the natural world. So if that's the trunk of my work and it is rooted in my experience as a gardener and as a student of natural history, um, uh, food, if you care about the human engagement with, nat with the natural world, you're going to write about food because we change nature more through our um, eating than anything else we do. Your, your dietary choices affect the world more than the kind of car you drive or how you heat your home um, because agriculture changes the landscape dramatically. Agriculture changes the composition of species. You know, the reason there's so many cattle in the U.S. and, and so few wolves have to do with the fact that we eat cattle and so do wolves and we compete with them for it. So we've exterminated the wolves. Uh, and, and the climate. We now know that food contributes probably about 20% the food system to, uh, to uh, greenhouse gases. So that's a very important uh, branch off the tree of my interest in nature. But another branch is looking at what plants do to us, how they change us, we change them, and the various interesting things we use them for. And so we use, we use plants to feed ourselves, obviously very important. We use them for beauty, obviously also very important. But curiously, we use them also to alter our consciousness. Um, every culture on earth has had a plant or fungus that they use to change consciousness. It could be as mild as tea and coffee, uh, up to, say, the opiates uh, for pain relief. Um, alcohol. Alcohol is another one, and that comes from plants, too, and, and fungi, the fungi, the fungi who um, ferment it. Uh, and then you've got these really radical cases, these psychedelic plants, ones that really alter consciousness. Um, and, you know, a great many cultures have used those for thousands of years. So I've always been curious about that human desire. What's behind it? Is it adaptive? And why would it be adaptive? What is it good for? And then I started reading about this renaissance of research going on using psychedelics, specifically psilocybin, which is the ingredient in magic mushrooms. 
um, to treat people for various uh, mental uh, forms of mental distress and mental illness. And I was like, wow, this is, I think this is a good time to revisit this interest. Because I'd written about cannabis way back when as, as a very important mind-changing um, substance. Um, so to me, it's of a piece. There are also things we ingest that, that have a profound effect on us, uh, as does food. And, um, uh, and there's also is the... Um, they're also about health, and you know, I have I'm passionately interested in in human health, and uh, in this in in the same way, food affects our physical health and our mental health. By the way, um, these substances, these mind changing substances we take into our bodies, affects our mental health. A lot of people listening to this may have an idea about psychedelics, something that they heard about in the past, maybe in the 1960s, but it doesn't really necessarily play a part in their day-to-day -day lives. They've certainly, well, clearly not everyone, but many listeners will not have heard about psychedelics in the context of human yeah, health. I think that's right. And, and, and I, well, I'm intrigued to understand what conditions did you come across or illnesses did you come across initially where you thought, wow, that that's pretty... Um, exciting reaches that, that that compelled you to to go on this odyssey over a number of years which has culminated in your book you know what what was it that you first got excited about yeah i had the idea that you might use psychedelic drugs to heal in any way was complete uh, completely foreign to me and, and really news um i like most people had an image of psychedelics very much rooted in the 1960s in the counterculture and that these were drugs being used recreationally uh, that were very disruptive to individual lives and to and to the culture's life and um uh and so I thought, and even the word psychedelic, I thought was a 60s word. Um, so I was very surprised to learn that long before it became this counterculture sacrament in the, in the mid-60s, um, there had been this very serious, active, fertile period of research looking at psychedelic compounds such as LSD and psilocybin uh, as a treatment. Uh, for alcoholism, for depression, uh, for anxiety, for the um, the what's called existential distress of people with a cancer diagnosis, and this work had been going on from 1950 uh, well into the 60s, and it had produced some some remarkable successes, and it, you know it was this LSD and psilocybin looked like new psychiatric wonder drugs to the mental health community and and to psychiatry. And um, the word psychedelic, in fact, was coined by an English psychiatrist in 1956 or 57, um, and it means simply mind manifesting. So, you know, it's become associated in our minds with a certain kind of graphics and color and music, um, but it was pretty serious medicine for a period of time. And then we had this backlash in the 60s that basically deep-sixed all the research for 30 years. Um, so the first indication I heard about that it was being used for was to treat people with cancer. Um, basically, when the research got restarted around 2000, uh, after this cold freeze that it had been in for, for 30 years. Um, they, they went back and looked at the research that had been done in the 50s. These are researchers uh, at, um, at Johns Hopkins and NYU, UCLA, uh, and at Imperial College in, in London. And um, they, they were looking at what they had had success with in the past and sought to reproduce that research because the standards done for psychiatric research were not as, as rigorous as they were in the 50s. 
Um, after the thalidomide scandal in 1962, we really tightened up how we approve drugs and, and, the, and the kinds of testing you need to do before they can be approved. Um, so they had had success in the 50s and 60s giving the drug to people who were dying. And um, it sounds like a weird idea, but in fact, that's a spiritual predicament in many ways. And the drugs actually sponsor a spiritual experience, a mystical experience, where people... Um, have a uh, an experience of their their self or ego dissolving in a way that makes allows them to merge with something larger than themselves, whether it's nature or the universe, and it's it can be under the right circumstances an incredibly uh, positive and reassuring experience that the death of your ego, the death of yourself, isn't the death of all of you. That something survives in some sense, your consciousness, your legacy. And um, and so I talked to these uh, volunteers who were really having these transformative experiences that in, in many cases remove their fear of death uh, and help them overcome their, their, um, their anxiety and depression. Uh, and th these studies that I started looking at, and that was my first foray into doing journalism about this, um, produced successful outcomes in 80% of the, um, the volunteers. They had um, marked decreases in their scores on surveys for, um, for depression and anxiety. I mean, Michael, that's a staggering statistic, 80%. Yeah. I mean, and for, for people who are listening to this, who this is new information for, you know, what you're talking about is the potential of a substance, a natural substance to potentially improve the health significantly of 80% of the people who are taking it, certainly in that particular... For that, yeah, for that indication. And the numbers for some other indications are closer to the two-thirds mark. Um, there's been a, a, a... It's being used in addiction to uh, smoking cessation. It had very good success in a pilot study. Alcoholism, uh, also very good success in a pilot study. And uh, so the, the effect sizes have been impressive also. I mean, the... Um, when you compare it to other psychiatric meds, things like SSRI antidepressants, the effect size, at least in these phase two trials, uh, are much more um, dramatic. And uh, uh, so, there's a there's a really strong signal here that we've got we've got a valuable medicine. We still need to go through the larger trials, and we need to determine exactly what are the best uh, illnesses to treat with it. But this looks to be a very promising new tool for psychiatry, and boy, does psychiatry need it right now. You mentioned quite a lot of different um, conditions, if you will, you know, depression, PTSD, uh, cancer, um, you know, uh, smoking cessation, Ad addiction, alcohol addiction. Yeah. And it strikes me that why could, how, or how can a natural substance potentially treats so many different conditions if they are all separate conditions. Yeah. Well, that's the big if. Exactly. Um, there's, there's, you know, I had the same idea when I was researching this. I was like, this sounds like a panacea. Um, <laughs> how, could, how could it work for such different things as anxiety, depression, and addiction, obsessive compulsive disorder? Eating disorders, some people think, will be um, a good good uh, really? thing to try, which would be fantastic because eating disorders are the uh, the most dangerous psychiatric illness. More people die of that, and it's the hardest to treat wow. of all psychiatric illnesses. Um, well, I asked some people that. I asked. I remember having an interview with Tom Insel, who's the uh, was the director of the National Institute of Mental Health in America, a very prominent psychiatrist, and he said, "Well." 
don't be so sure all those all those illnesses are so different. Um, they may be different manifestations of a similar brain or mind. They're all characterized by a kind of mental stuckness, um, by a, a mind that's that's trapped in loops of rumination. They're all, in a way, uh, forms of bad habits, uh, bad habits in terms of uh, behavior or thought processes. Um, in all cases, you've got a... a, a an individual who is stuck in really destructive narratives about themselves. You know, I, I can't get through the day without a cigarette or a, or a beer. I, uh, I'm unworthy of love. My work is crap. Um, and um, so in a way, they all need to have this kind of, uh, these deep grooves of thought disturbed uh, and, and to be shaken out of them. And that appears to be what the... Um, what the medicines do, you know, we operate on the belief on the on the basis of beliefs, beliefs about ourselves, beliefs about the world. The depressive has a set of beliefs about themselves in the world that are, you know, not true and um, and very destructive um, about their self worth, uh, about um, other people and their relationship to them, and the thinking is that the psychedelics. Um, by temporarily suppressing the sense of self or ego, which they seem to do reliably on a high dose, um, jog those beliefs, um, make them more plastic, uh, more amenable to change, especially with therapeutic help. It's, it's important, though, to point out that we're not talking about simply taking a drug and having these effects. We're talking about a package where there's a lot of um, psycho, uh, psychotherapeutic support. Um, you're, you know, you're, you're working with therapists the whole time and they're helping you prepare for what's, what's about to happen when you have this journey. They sit with you during the whole time and they help you interpret it afterwards. So, um, it's not getting together with your friends, having a few beers and no, taking some mushrooms. It's so different than that. I mean, the molecules I think that's the key, same. key for us to emphasize yeah. really. The molecule is the only thing that it has in common with that. Um, and the molecule is you know, doesn't determine everything. Um, the, you know, Timothy Leary, the, the Harvard psychologist who, who introduced psychedelics to a lot of people in the 60s, uh, said that, you know, what's, what's notable about these drugs is the importance of set and setting, by which he meant the kind of internal environment and external environment in which you have this experience, your mindset going into it. And so um, the therapists essentially create an optimal mindset and environment for you to have a very inward journey. In fact, you're wearing eye shades also. Um, you're not, you're not just looking at the, you know, sensory fireworks that are going on. You're, you're encouraged to move inside and, and have your mind go to what's troubling you. And, and if it's your cancer, for example, many of the, um, uh, volunteers would, would go into their body and in, in their imaginations and, uh, and have an encounter with their cancer or their fear. And you, you tell a nice story about that in the book, don't you? Could you share that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I was trying to understand how this sim single experience uh, on a psychedelic could change one's outlook on their cancer. And I interviewed a, a woman named uh, Dina Baser, who was a New Yorker. She was about 60. She was a figure skating instructor uh, by, by profession. And she had had ovarian cancer that had been successfully treated. It was in remission. And, um, but she was paralyzed by fear it was going to come back any day and that the other shoe was going to drop. 
And she, uh, so she enrolled in the program at NYU, New York University, where they were doing this trial. And um, uh, during her psilocybin trip, she, like many of the other cancer patients, went into her body and she saw this black mass. She sort of took a tour of her body and she saw this black mass, ugly black mass under her rib cage. And she knew it wasn't her cancer because it was in the wrong place. It was not, you know, where your ovaries are. And, um, but she recognized what it was immediately. She said, this is my fear. And she screamed at it. She said, get the fuck out of my body. And, um, and as soon as she said that, it vanished. And so did her fear. And even after the experience was over, the fear was gone and it has not come back. And she said, it helped me to understand, and this was kind of the insight she carried from the experience, that although I cannot control my cancer, it's either going to come back or not, I can control my fear. That's about my response to it. And that distinction liberated her. Um, And when I uh, published this in uh, the New Yorker magazine, this story, uh, the fact checkers called her to confirm everything as they do. And they read her the line and I had said something like, and Dina's fear was substantially diminished. And she said, she corrected them. She said, no, that's wrong. My fear was eliminated. Um, That's quite remarkable. One experience. And um, there is something about the psychedelic experience that whatever you insights you have, whatever truths you, you connect with during that time, they're very sticky um, they don't feel like opinions. They don't feel subjective. They feel like objective truths. You know, this is revealed knowledge. And that, I think, is what makes the insights people have on psychedelics um, so useful in behavior change and in, and in changing attitudes, um, that you have this uh, authority uh, in the experience that uh, we seldom have. Because, I, you know, I talked to smokers who would tell me, I'd say, so how did one psilocybin trip allow you to quit smoking? And they say, well, I saw my life from a new perspective. It was as, as though the camera were pulled back further than it ever had. And I, and I saw what I was doing and I realized smoking is really stupid. <laughs> now, most of them, I'm sure, had thought that before and other people had told them that. Their doctors had told them that. Um, but the next day they were doing it again. And yet, Having had that thought on psychedelics, it felt like tablets handed down from God. You know, it just had that kind of weight. And and it was the kind of weight that people could act on. But it sounds like it gives you a different perspective on your own life. You're still living your life, but you get a completely new view on how it's on, on what's going on day to day. And it reminds me of um one of the earlier guests I had on this podcast was a, a doctor from New York called Frank Lippman, who's an integrated doctor. He's probably been, um, you know, practicing in a way that's been quite questioning off the medical establishment for maybe 20, 30 years. And I've got a lot of respect for Frank and what he's been doing. And I, I asked him, why do you think, Frank, that you have always been so open-minded for the last 20, 30 years? And he said two reasons. One is because I grew up in apartheid in South Africa. So I've always questioned authority because of the culture I grew up in. But he also said at that time, I also took LSD Mm. as a teenager. And I think that's also contributed to my view. And I don't think I quite got it at the time Mm -hmm. because I wasn't familiar with this research. I hadn't read your book. I was 
I didn't think I quite got it in the same way, but it's now all starting to make a bit more sense that maybe that experience changed him and he could no longer view life and his day-to-day actions in the same way. Same way. You know, I think there's something to that. I think that psychedelics do induce a kind of perspectival shift in people and they don't accept what they've been handed, basically. And I mean, this is the same reason that it was so disruptive in the 60s. People didn't accept, American boys weren't accepting the draft. You know, they were trying to send them off to war and they were like, wait, wait a minute, this is an unjust war that we're losing anyway. Why am I going to do that? So there is a there is a willingness to question your beliefs, the beliefs you've been given, the beliefs you've been taught. And if your beliefs are in that that knot of depression or anxiety where you're you're going over the same uh you can't escape your 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 beliefs about yourself or the world it's exactly what you need is is a real um a real shift in perspective a powerful shift in perspective and it's true i mean your user i mean your conventional beliefs are reinforced by your ego it's your it's yourself which is telling you stories about who you are and how the world works and defending you against change and um, the most notable thing that happens on a high-dose psychedelic trip is your ego dissolves um, or at least becomes much more uh, soft or permeable. And that allows other thoughts to enter into your consciousness. Um, you connect the dots in new ways. And uh, so I've interviewed a great many people like the doctor you're describing who have had big changes in their life and their outlook as a result of a single trip or, or multiple trips. And that I, I've met artists who found their vocation doing this. I've met um, scientists, a great many scientists. I'm surprised how many psychiatrists and neuroscientists uh, had their interest in the mind kindled by a psychedelic experience. Uh, physicists to wow. software engineers. You know, Steve Jobs famously talked about how uh, the, one of the most um, formative experiences of his life was his his work with LSD, and he believed it really allowed him to think outside the box aesthetically and think about the computer in a different way. I mean, you, you mentioned all these uh, people from a wide variety of different disciplines who have gone on trips. And even that word trip is, I think for many people, it, it has negative connotations, Um but I think it's important to emphasize that a lot of the research you're talking about now is being done in in very prestigious institutions, you know, in, in, in with, America. With government also, approval and, and IRB approval, institutional review board approvals. And, and, and right here in London, where we're chatting yeah. now, there's some of the some of the sort of leading research going on. Yeah, Imperial College is one of the leaders in this area. There, There is a, a young scientist there named Robin Carhart-Harris who's doing some really path-breaking work. He's doing clinical work. He's working on depression right now. He has a big trial. Um, but he's also doing uh, brain imaging to figure out what's going on in the brain during this experience and to make sense of it. And he's doing very, very provocative theoretical work trying to trying to explain how this might be the psychological and brain mechanisms behind these changes. And um, it's, you know, look, it's one of the most exciting areas in neuroscience right now. And um, more and more institutions and, and smart scientists are getting involved. So we're going to know a lot more in five years than we do now. Do you think this is the next big frontier in the treatments of mental health, but potentially also in all human health? You know, that's a big claim. Uh, I think there's a good chance that will be the case. I think that 
um, I didn't understand when I started this project how much mental health care and psychiatry need a revolution. Um, these this field is is not is is broken. Um, to quote Tom Insel again, um, it's not working for people. If you compare the treatment of of mental illness with the treatment of physical illness. Um, uh, if you compare mental health care to oncology, cardiologies, infectious disease, um, all those areas of medicine have made enormous strides in uh, extending people's lifespan, reducing human suffering. You cannot say that about mental health care or psychiatry. The, the tools that they have are really rudimentary. They address symptoms for the most part. The drugs that they use have um, have really um, difficult side effects for people. People don't like taking them. They're very hard to get off of. Um, and I, I'm not, you know, SSRIs, are, but also the antipsychotic drugs are, are really hard on the body, and you have to take them every day. And here you have the potential of a completely different paradigm where you're not administering a drug, a toxic drug every day. You're administering an effect and experience um, that this, this one administration of a drug gives you. And it is that experience that is not just relieving symptoms, but in many cases addressing fundamental causes. Um, that's a really big deal. Now, I hasten to add, we, we still have more work to do. We, we've, we, we are still in early days. There are bigger trials that need to happen. Depression, which is now being trialed in both the United States and all over Europe and England, um, hundreds of people will be um, treated in the next couple of years, and we'll really know whether this is whether depression is the best indication or should we be working on something else. Um, but we have a mental health crisis, make no mistake. We have rising rates of depression worldwide. Depression now is the leading cause of disability worldwide. 300 million people struggle with depression. It's a huge number. Suicide rates uh, are up uh, dramatically. Um, it's the second leading cause of death in people from 15 to 25. Um, that's just, yeah. we have to address that. Uh, and um, addiction. Uh, in America, we have a, a huge problem with opiate addiction. 75,000 people died the year before last from opiate addiction. More than were killed in the whole, the whole of the Vietnam War. So um, psychiatry needs new tools. And I think that's one of the reasons that psychiatry has been, to me, surprisingly receptive to what was once a very fringe approach um, or, or a taboo approach. Um, but you know, we're taking another look here. And, uh, and then there is the, you know, you, you, you alluded to this in your question. Um, what about the rest of us? Um, yeah. Does this have relevance for the health of people who don't have a clinical diagnosis for mental illness? And I would say yes, based on my own experience um, and the experience of many other people that, look, we're all on the spectrum with people who are dying. We are all dying. Uh, we're all mortal. Uh, we all suffer from depression from time to time, from anxiety. We're all addicted to something, some kind of behavior, uh, whether it's our, you know, our iPhones or, or um, uh, you know, substances uh, or just bad habits. Um, so I do think there is a relevance. And, and, you know, I think we need to work toward uh, a system or a structure in which people who are not um, mentally ill, per se, could, could benefit from this. And, you know, in the same way that people who are not 
don't have a clinical diagnosis seek psychotherapy and get benefit from talking therapy or um, or cognitive behavioral therapy for for milder forms of mental distress, whether it's uh, uh, you know problems with in relationships, family problems. Um, it seems to me this should be available in the same way that your 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 normal neurotic, as they're sometimes called, benefits from psychotherapy. That normal neurotic might benefit from psychedelic therapy as well. But the, the, just to be clear, these most of these psychedelics, and maybe you could list off some of the common ones for people so they understand mm-hmm. what, what exactly these substances are. Many of them are illegal. Yes, uh, very important to point that out. And um, uh, they're all illegal, um, except in a very few jurisdictions. Um, I mean, in Amsterdam, psilocybin is legal, for example. Um, but basically, there's, there's Schedule One or Schedule A, um, and which means that these are drugs that, in the government's view, have no medical use and a high potential for abuse. Both those facts are not true. We're finding that they do have medical use, and they don't have high potential for abuse. I, I don't know that people realize, but psychedelic drugs, which have this very dangerous image in our heads, uh, the, the classic psychedelics, which in which I would include um, psilocybin, LSD, DMT, um, uh, are... And DMT is, is the active ingredient in ayahuasca? Ayahuasca, right? but it's also synthesized and used. It's actually, it, it's, it's, it's common in many plants. Um, yeah. But um, these... These medicines uh, are virtually non-toxic. There is no lethal dose um, for psilocybin or LSD. That's remarkable because you have drugs in your medicine cabinet that you bought off over the counter that have a lethal dose. You know, Tylenol's lethal dose is in the couple dozen pills. Um, you, can, you can go to the pharmacy, buy paracetamol, and kill yourself. Yeah, you and know, with not that much. It's remarkable. And here we have these drugs that they've never been able to establish a lethal dose. So what's going on there? Why is it that these drugs, which are natural, which have no lethal dose, that are not addictive, that have such potential, you know, such therapeutic potential for a range of different conditions, it seems madness. How did we get here? How do we get here where they are illegal? So people will be listening to this saying, wow, that sounds exciting. I'd love to get going. Yeah. But actually the system out there will not allow the majority of people to get going should yep. they choose to. Well, you have to go back to the 60s and this um, uh, the, when at a time when the drugs were being widely used by people in the counterculture and they scared the hell out of both parents and uh, adults. Timothy Leary was out proselytizing for LSD in a, in a really reckless way, telling everybody to turn on, tune in and drop out. Um, President Nixon believed that the drugs were um, sapping the will of American boys to fight and fueling the counterculture. And he waged war on them. He, be, he begins the drug war in 1970. And that's when they, they, they go on to Schedule 1. Um, they you know, were disruptive um, and in ways that, you know, you could argue based on your politics were either good or bad. I mean, they contributed to the anti-war movement. Um, they contributed to the environmental movement and feminism. I mean, the, the, you know, the 60s were a period of enormous social tumult and upheaval and um, much good came out of it. But it was also there was a, a powerful backlash against it. And part of that backlash was uh, a kind of moral panic against psychedelics. It was a weird moment because you've you had 
the kids having a kind of experience that the adults were not having and didn't understand. You know, normally in a culture, if you think of the acid trip, the LSD trip as a rite of passage, normally in a culture, rites of passage are organized by the adults to bring the young into yeah. adult society. So you have, um, you know, whether it's a vision quest in Native American traditions or a bar mitzvah in Judaism, it's a, it's, a, it's a set of obstacles you have to get over, organized by the elders, and the adolescent crosses the river and ends up in adult society. That's how it's supposed to work. They're, they're unifying. Here you had a rite of passage organized by the kids, for the kids, and they ended up in a place very different than where the adults were. And this was very threatening. Um, and, you know, the words turn on, tune in, drop out sound kind of silly, like a bumper sticker to us, but... Those were those were frightening words at that point. So you have, uh, and then there were these scare stories. I mean, there were some casualties. A lot of people were taking LSD. Sometimes it was bad material. It was it was uh, contaminated with other drugs. Speed very often, and um, some people were ending up in the psych ward. There were a couple suicides, and then there were scare stories deliberately put out there that weren't true, such as um, you know, college kids would stare at the sun till they went blind. That was completely fabricated. And so you had um, uh, the press uh, started highlighting all the scare stories. And in the way of the suggestibility of these drugs, the more people heard those scare stories, the more bad things happened. It's very interesting. You don't read about a lot of bad trips until the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. People had some difficult times on psychedelics, and that that is a real risk of them, especially when you're not supervised. But... Um, the more you heard about it, the more people had bad experiences. So um, there was a powerful reaction against it, and the drugs were made illegal, and the and the research was shut down. And um, just imagine um, what we might know now if we'd had a thirty additional years of research. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing to think how far we may have stagnated in our understanding of the human mind, really, because ultimately that's. Yeah, that's really what's exciting here. It's going to teach us. We probably know very little about our minds and maybe psychedelics are a way to teach us. But I guess the other thought that comes to my mind is you're saying we look back on the 60s, a very very tumultuous time, lots of social upheaval, lots of things going on in culture. And I thought, I wonder if people will look back at this current decade in the same way, because we have, obviously, in the US, you've got Trump here, we've got the whole Brexit um, situation going on, that, that, that people are, you know, having tribal wars over which camp you fit into. We seem to have lost the ability for nuance and, and, and subtlety. Uh, we have the environmental crisis, which seems to be getting worse and more and more urgent by the day. And it strikes me on one level, will we look back at this decade in the same way as being quite a toxic decade? But also, yeah. is, it, is, is there something in this that we're looking now to nature again when the environment is struggling, when we are you know, killing the world on so many ways as humans and we're looking potentially to a natural substance to, to heal us and bring us together? I don't know, there seems to be some sort of circularity to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the 60s are different than today in in an important respect, which is, yes, there was a lot of upheaval, but there was a powerful utopian um, uh, uh, 
direction, trajectory. I mean, people were really working to build a better world, to end the war. There was a, a, a powerful right. movement. I mean, as is now rising around climate change, but it's so much darker now than it was then. There was a lot of optimism uh, that we could remake the world in the 60s. And that optimism is what's missing now. So, and, so could psychedelics, therefore, well, give I think us that that's, optimism? That's an interesting question. I mean, it, it's often come up, it came up in the 60s too, that um, could psychedelics be a tool for social change? Um, and psychedelics changes people in a way that seems quite relevant to our predicament. Um, you know, as I see it, our predicament, the two two most um, important aspects of it are the environmental crisis, um, the fact that, you know, we are really reaching a, a tipping point into utter environmental disaster, uh, and then um, tribalism, um, the, yeah. the fact that we are breaking down into tribes and nations and religions and races and uh, can't see over these barriers. And we're, we're erecting walls uh, between ourselves and, and other people. Interestingly enough, and this may explain why psychedelics are, are having their renaissance right now, they address both those questions, at least in the individual. So that when people have that psychedelic experience, I describe this sense of ego dissolution followed by this what's called unitive consciousness, this sense that you're part of something larger, that you're merging uh, the walls come down, and you feel very connected to the natural world. Um, the natural world seems more alive than it ever has. Um, and, you know, that's not just a subjective opinion. Um, the, the, the group at Imperial College has actually done uh, measurements to see, and there's something called a nature connectedness scale that psychologists use to judge how much do you feel you're part of nature or how much do you feel you stand outside nature. And those scales change after a single psychedelic experience. People feel much more connected to nature. And on the other side, on the political side, um, the tribalism side, People uh, have much less tolerance for authoritarian um, ideas after psychedelic experience, and they feel this positive flow of love toward the other, whether the other is nature or other people, and you feel like you're more like others. You know, our tendency, the ego's tendency, when the ego is ascendant, is to objectify the other, uh, that, that it is the only thinking, feeling subject and everything else is an object. When you think that way, you can be abusive. You can be exploitive of the other. You can control and manipulate nature and, and do the same to other people. And yeah. this drug um, is, a, is a medicine for both those conditions. Um, everything feels like another subject out there. And there is uh, this, this rush of empathy um, for the other that you've never felt before. And it's, it's very powerful. So... In a way, yes, exactly the right drug for what ails us. But I have to add a, a, a big question mark, which is how do you prescribe a drug to a culture? Um, we have no model for that. The only model we have is, you know, vaccinations and, uh, and fluoride in the water supply. And we're not going to put LSD in the water supply. Um, that would not be a good idea. Um, so then is the question to offer the experience to as many people as possible? Will that actually change society? I don't know. We haven't tried anything like that. Um, or do, you, or do you perhaps make it available to influential people, uh, world leaders, uh, corporate chiefs, um, religious leaders, with the hope that that way of thinking, that, that, that fresh perspective would, would filter down to everybody yeah. else? So there's kind of an elitist and a populist approach to this question. Um, 
you know, I, I just think you get onto very tricky territory when you talk about that. But there's no question that um, these medicines, um, at least in the individual, uh, take us where in many ways we need to go. You mentioned dissolving the ego. And it's funny, you know, I've I've been practicing now for nearly 20 years. And, you know, the last years, it's really become quite clear to me that many of my patients who are struggling with their health in, in some sort of chronic form, something that I don't think I was quite as aware of as a younger doctor when I first qualified is how much our emotions and the way we view ourselves and our lives plays a role in our health. And it's become more and more clear to me, literally year on year, how a lot of people with chronic illness, either it's the chronic illness that's made them feel this way, or actually there are some emotional barriers that keep people locked in certain patterns. Something I found in my own life, not particularly for a chronic illness, but since my dad died, um, what, maybe six, six and a half years ago now, I've been doing a lot of personal growth work, a lot of you know, we were, we were out for dinner last night. I was telling you about IFS, Internal Family Systems, a form of psychotherapy that I've been doing uh, that really helps me understand myself better. starts to help me dissolve bits of my ego, helps me understand why I make the choices I make in certain situations, why certain things bother me and trigger me. And once I understand that and process it, often I change my behavior and it seems to be quite a permanent change. And I can look back with clarity and go, wow, that used to trigger me every time. And I know I now know why it used to trigger me, but it doesn't anymore. So I guess what I'm getting to is, on one level, what you appear to be describing is understanding ourselves better. You know, turning down the noise of this voice in our head that has maybe accumulated emotional baggage for 20, 30, 40 years, however long we've had it. And we think that's who we are. But actually, it may not be who we really are. It may just be that ego that's been developed. So I, it's, it's a long-winded way of asking this question, but is or do psychedelics in some way get to the same states that one might be able to attain through a lot of psychotherapy or a lot of counseling? Or you know, can you access that state in other ways? Uh, the short answer is yes. Um, you know, I, I see psychedelics as a shortcut. Um, you know, some people often say after they've had a psychedelic session with a therapist, that was like 10 years of therapy rolled into one day. Wow. And um, so, yeah, what you do in therapy very often is get a little distance on your ego and recognize you don't always have to listen to that voice. It isn't always acting in your best interest, and you're not identical to it. I mean, this is a very important therapeutic insight. So to answer your question, the short answer is yes, there are other ways to get to the same place. And psychedelic therapy uh, is really a shortcut to achieving some of the perspectives and insights you might in conventional psychotherapy. Uh, one of the most important, I think, at least in my experience, was when I had uh, on a on a high dose psilocybin guided psilocybin trip. I had an experience of utter ego dissolution. I was I saw myself um, burst into a little cloud of post-it notes, and then look, and then I and then I saw myself, and I was a coat of paint on the ground, and that was myself, and I was gone, and yet I was perceiving it from another perspective, and that perspective was not 
troubled in any way. It was just like the most natural thing in the world. It had perfect equanimity about what had just happened. I don't know what that new perspective was, but it, what it taught me, um, and in a very visceral way where I felt it, was like, wow, I'm not identical to my ego. There is another ground on which to stand and confront life's challenges. And I didn't understand that. I thought I thought I was identical to that voice in my head. And that told me I don't have to listen to it all the time. Uh, and and in the years since this happened, I can I have a little bit of a healthy distance on my ego. I can recognize when he's up to you know his old tricks when he's when he's being triggered by something, and I yeah. don't have to be triggered by that. So it is a kind of psychoanalytic insight. Um, and in the, by the same token psychedelics are a shortcut to the insights that meditators achieve. People who've done, you know, thousands of hours of meditation have really worked on also dissolving their ego and making their mind a space where what had been charged thoughts and emotions simply pass through without being grasped at. And, um, and so again, it's, it's a perspectival shift on, on consciousness. And, so I don't think it's fundamentally different. I think the benefit of psychedelics is that it's uh, so fast, yeah, and um, and frankly takes less work. Um, <laughs> and and I think you know in our culture that, that that's a big plus. Um, and because we can't afford to give long term psychotherapy to that many people, and um, and many people don't have the discipline to to meditate, um, but. Uh, so I do see that though as being really central and, and, and this idea of pulling, you know, not letting your ego fool you into thinking he's the whole show and that his voice has to be listened to. Um, and do, that, do you think it's hard for some people to get their heads around that? So if someone is listening and they've never heard of this term of ego before and the, the separation between your ego and yourself, it might be quite a... A foreign thoughts. I mean, what do you mean? You know, I am who I am. You know, the way I think is, is the way I think. You know, what do you mean? That's a separation, and I'm not who I think. Yeah, but we all are familiar with the with conflicting voices in our heads. Yeah. I think, right, when we're deciding to do something, and on the one hand is this voice, and on the other hand is, you know, one voice is maybe the rational voice saying this isn't wise, and the other voice is this would really be fun, and um, uh, so we we're not singular. Um, there are conflicts in our heads. And um, we sometimes identify with one voice rather than another. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the guilt we suffer after we do certain things, you know, that is, you know, Freud said it was the superego, which is a component of the ego that has moral and ethical um, values attached to it. Um, these are obviously all constructs. Um, you know, Buddhism tells you that if you look in your mind for that I, for that that driver in the seat, that's that's uh, you know yourself. You cannot find it. Um, it's not really there. It's an illusion, and that's a weird idea to get your head around too. Um, consciousness is generally a weird. But it's, <laughs> what's funny, what's interesting about it for me is that once you do get your head around it, and once you've, you know you know, peaked your, your ears into that world, you can't go back. Yeah, that's right. And, and that, it, it strikes me as that, that's almost what you're saying about psychedelics and, uh, for some people is that once you've done it, 
you just don't view things in the same way anymore. You can't because you've had your eyes opened. Yes. And and that, you know, it's interesting. After I had that experience of ego dissolution, which was a, a happy thing, because when my ego went away, I felt very merged with what was around me. I, I had this great sense of well-being. And, um, and, but afterwards, I said to the guide, I said, well, you know, I did have this interesting experience and uh, I realized my ego, I'm not identical to my ego. And she said, isn't that worth the price of admission? I said, yeah, but my ego's back now. You know, he's he's on patrol, he's in his uniform. And she said, well, having had a sample of that way of thinking, and that's essentially what psychedelics gives you, is a sample of a new way of thinking, you can cultivate it. You know, that's what learning is. It's a new, new set of connections in the brain. And the more you exercise those connections, the stronger they get. And so I, and I asked her, how? How could I cultivate this way of being? And she said, meditation. Um, she said, meditation is a, is, a, is a great way to take those insights you've had on psychedelics and reinforce them um, by practicing a kind of uh, quieting of your thoughts, of your ego's, uh, you know, chatter. So like a bit of a post-experience homework, as it were. In a way it is, yeah. And it's about reinforcement uh, and consolidation. Um, the more we we remember something, the stronger it becomes. And, and I have certain images from my psychedelic trips that I often think about in meditation, and they get stronger and stronger. Um, so there are ways to carry this forward into your life. I don't think most people realize, but when Buddhism came to the West... Uh, and, and, and to America, especially in the 70s and 80s, you had these uh, Americans who kind of brought these ideas that were very foreign at the time to, to mainstream culture. All of those prominent Buddhists had begun on psychedelics. Um, really? They had had these big psychedelic experiences, um, had experienced a new kind of consciousness, and then wanted to find a way to... to keep it going in their lives because you can't make psychedelics are not a practice you can't you can't take them every day you can't take them every week um how how could they do that and they realized well buddhist meditation um was a way to cultivate that kind of consciousness on a daily basis that is so fascinating so to hear that we would not have buddhism in america right now and it's quite popular and 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 we would not have mindfulness mindful meditation if not for psychedelics I mean, that's incredible. And I, I really do feel it's reflective of where we are in society now that Buddhism, mindfulness, meditation, uh, you know, they are really growing in popularity because they, yeah. they appear to be the perfect antidote to the modern worlds. And they're entering medicine too. I mean, in America now, you know, mindfulness meditation is, is an accepted reimbursed treatment for high blood pressure and uh, stress. And um, they they have a kind of mainstream acceptability. There's mindfulness is being taught in schools to young children, um, and so. But the DNA of that goes back to this psychedelic consciousness. In your research, Michael, have you come across any cultures where this is a rite of passage between childhood and adulthoods? Um, and also, have you come across this being used in children, for example, in any cultures? Yeah, in uh, in Brazil there are ayahuasca churches. Um, these are these are basically uh, congregations of people who get together and as part of their worship every week they take uh, ayahuasca in not in large doses but in medium or small doses, and they give it to the children as well. 
Um, so the children are brought into this culture early. Uh, you know, again, it's non-toxic. To us, it seems like an outrageous idea to give children these kind of things. But it's interesting, you know, if the if psychedelics get approved for use, the first thing the FDA often asks you is, how young can you give it to people? And then you start having, the next step is you do tests on adolescents uh, yeah. and then younger kids uh, to see if they can, if you can get the same beneficial effects. And we do have a lot of teen suicide. So if indeed this is a good treatment for depression, uh, the researchers will probably be encouraged to look at that. Um, but there are, you know, there are many ancient cultures that have made use of psychedelics, both for religious purposes as a kind of sacrament and also for healing. Um, shamanism, you know, often uses psychedelics. Psychedelics have been used for thousands of years and, you know, all over the world. And um, we we don't know a lot about it. It was sometimes shrouded in secrecy or the practices have died out since uh, along with the cultures. But but we, there was a recent discovery in Bolivia of um, this, this uh, in a cave, in a, you know, an inhabited cave where they found this kit of tools and pouches and things. And they, they did some uh, analysis um, and discovered that there were residues from uh, ayahuasca, DMT, and cocaine. And the interesting thing about the ayahuasca, though, is the plants that they found there that contained it were not local plants. So there, there was trade in wow. South America more than a thousand years ago in psychoactive, psychedelic plants. Um, they also have been used in Mexico for thousands of years by the native, uh, the indigenous populations. Uh, there are shamans in Siberia who were using another kind of mushroom that's psychoactive. Um, and the ancient Greeks had a, appear to have a psychedelic they used in some of their rituals. Um, there's some recent re research that suggests it was a derivative of the same fungus from which LSD comes. And um, so they've been used for a very long time. Uh, and why? Well, you know, I think that they had that psychedelics may have had a lot to do with nurturing that that um, spark of religiosity in humans. Um, you know, the idea that there's another world, that there's a beyond, um, that you go somewhere after you die, um, that there are other dimensions. Basically, that's a really weird idea to come to, and you could see how use of psychedelics would nurture that idea. And so, you know, psychedelics may be at the root of the religious impulse. Um, and that sounds like, you know, um, a heretical idea to suggest that, wait, a chemical is at the root of religion. But of course, to, to traditional peoples, these weren't chemicals. This was nature. This was nature speaking to us. This is nature you take into your body and you get visions. And um, they wouldn't find that heretical at all. On so many levels, it feels that what's exciting about this is that we're looking at spirituality and we're also looking at cutting edge, modern science. And it feels as though this work that's now being done in these established institutions is starting to bring those two worlds together. Those two often very separate worlds are starting to combine and that's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, we we think of, I, when I first started doing this work, there was a paper that I read, one of the first papers of this renaissance, and it blew my mind. It had a title like, psilocybin can occasion mystical type experiences in healthy normal people with lasting positive effects. 
And like, wow, scientists studying mystical experience? But those worlds are coming together, and we're starting to understand the biology of spiritual experience, the parts of the brain that are deactivated that make you feel uh, a sense of spirituality. Um, and I think that's really exciting, uh, that uh, you know, science is going to give us insight into spirituality, and spirituality may give insight to science and medicine. Yeah, really exciting. And I know in, in the book you, you go into detail about the something called the default mode network that yeah. listeners to this podcast have heard me talk about on multiple occasions, but you really sort of um, take a deep dive into what goes on there when someone is having a psychedelic experience. Um, Michael, look, I've got a, a billion other questions to ask you, but I know we're almost out of time. Um, so one thing I, I want to just bring up, if, if I may, is you mentioned that psychedelics aren't the sort of thing you can take every few days, you know, and take, take regularly, like you can practice meditation or deep deep breathing or something like that um but there is this growing trend of something called microdosing yeah uh, i wonder if you could explain what microdosing is and then what your views are on it as well sure so microdosing is essentially using psychedelics in uh in a routine way in small doses uh usually a tenth of a normal dose it might be 10 micrograms of LSD taken once every 3 or 4 days you can't take it every day cuz you build up a tolerance and it doesn't work after a while um and there are a great many people uh i know in the united states and i and i gather from my trip here many people here who are um convinced that this use of psychedelics helps with their sense of well-being relieves depression uh, improves their productivity and their uh, creativity. Um, but it's important, and that may all be true, but it's important to understand there's really no research yet to support it. We haven't yet done the uh, placebo-controlled trials that would allow us to say, this is a real effect of that medicine versus this is just a placebo effect. The placebo effect on psychedelics is very powerful. We impute so much, so much magic to these molecules. Yeah. They're, they're, you know that that if I gave you a little bit of LSD and told you you were going to feel X or Y, you're very likely to feel that way. Um, you know, it's our minds have a. I mean, the placebo effect in general is amazing. I, I could even give you a sugar pill, or you could give me a sugar pill and tell <laughs> me as a doctor and tell me it's going to help my knee, and I and it would. Yeah, um, it's incredible. And so, you know, the, the power minds, of the minds. It is. It's exactly <laughs> that. The power of the mind. And and I I do think there is a role for psychedelics in addressing. Uh, psychosomatic illnesses of various kinds and autoimmune illness of various kinds because um, Andrew Weil has has made a, a you know a very compelling case that things like allergy might be susceptible to psychedelics um, and autoimmune disease which is quite remarkable it makes perfect sense to me because if you you know something we alluded to at the start of this podcast is I think there's been you know we've overly focused in medicine on diagnosis on you know what do we what's the name we give to this condition what's the name we give to this condition i understand that, how that evolved but but i i think we've really missed a big piece which is a lot of the root causes of many different manifestations of disease are actually quite similar. Yeah. Um, you know, our collective lifestyles being been a huge driver. You know, you've written about food for for donkeys' mm -hmm. years. You know, food can impact a whole variety of different illnesses, not just whether you're overweight or not. And so, and food can, of course, affect your mood and profound mood, ways. your genetic expression. All kinds of things can be impacted yeah. by food, which can obviously have an impact on multiple different conditions. There's trials going on at the moment. Well, one in 2017 showing how food. Uh, 
randomized control trial in, in Australia how food can improve our moods. And so the interesting thing for me is thinking as a doctor, I can see once we've got some, you know, really robust research, let's say for depression, which it looks as though that might be the first thing to come through, mm-hmm. then that will hopefully open the floodgates as to, you know, many other therapeutic uses of them. Um, I mean, look, changing our minds often means changing our bodies, right? These things are not separate. And um, the fact that we have this now, this powerful tool for changing minds could have a huge impact on uh, all those diseases that are implicated by our mental condition and vice versa. Um, So I think it's going to open up some fascinating research in basic science uh, about the mind and about the body um, and that we are just at the beginning uh, in a, of a revolution in our understanding of the mind and our ability to treat the mind. Um, and nothing nothing could be more exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And Mark, I, I really, from the bottom of my heart, I need to thank you for writing a frankly brilliant book. Uh, oh, thank a, you. A book that could be regarded as controversial in many ways. But I think when people read it, the way you've put everything together, the story, the journey you've taken us on, and you know the science, the personal anecdotes, really, I think, bring this uh, topic to life in a, in a very important way. And really, I think it's needed somebody as esteemed and, and, and as respected as yourself to go and take a deep dive, to have a psychedelic experience for the first time in your, what, late 50s? Yeah. You know, that I think is very powerful for people. Um, so I hope people have had their appetite whetted by our conversation to go actually and, and read more about it. Final thoughts. I normally leave people, um, I normally finish off the podcast with some top tips for people because I normally have a health expert on or, you know, and how people can improve the quality of their lives. But I'm sort of thinking it doesn't necessarily lend itself naturally to the the subject matter that we've been talking about. I, I, I presume you're not going to recommend that everyone goes out and gets hold of some psychedelics no. to take. Although some people have suggested I coin a new motto that would be take drugs, not too much, mostly psychedelics. But I don't, <laughs> I, I don't um, uh, to bring our conversation full circle. Um, I, but I, I, it, it's too momentous a, a, a decision to, you know, to, to tell people to go out and try yeah. psychedelics. Follow the research. If you have one of the, the problems that are being addressed, uh, you know, go on the websites of these uh, and look what's being offered there 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 I know the trial in in uh, in England is in London is is seeking uh, depressed patients to to uh, to work with they still have some openings in the trial and I have a lot of resources on my website michaelpollen.com right uh, to if you want to explore psychedelics further and find psychedelic societies in your town, um, which is a, a good way to get more information. Um, and uh, so anyway, that's that's where you can look. I mean, it's a, a lot of people hear this and and feel that who many of whom are at, at the end at their wits end dealing with depression, dealing with anxiety, and they hear this and they think this could be it. And but there's. There isn't much yet that we can offer, and that's very frustrating to me. Um, and I and I've heard from hundreds of people who you know have really upsetting stories to hear. And um, but it's coming, and it, it, it's going to be in the next five years or so. And any final words for somebody who may still be skeptical on how valuable psychedelics could be? Uh, I would read this book, How to Change Your Mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know I was skeptical too. It's very important to understand. I, I mean, I, I probably sound like 
you know, I'm being evangelical about this, but I went into this with lots of skepticism, lots of reluctance. I was terrified to take psychedelics, uh, you know, at my age. Um, and I had my mind changed on this subject. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm hoping if you get a chance to read the book that uh, the same will happen to you. Well, thanks for your time, Michael. If people want to connect with you on social media, are you active? And I'm, which channels? I'm active on Twitter uh, at Michael Pollan, and um, and my website has lots of resources. All my articles, uh, including articles on psychedelics, um, that are available for free. And um, yeah, but that's my main uh, social media. And I'm a, I'm on Instagram too, but I I don't talk about psychedelics there. <laughs> Michael, thank you for your time today. Enjoy the rest of your trip to London and the UK, and. I hope to see you again soon. Oh, thanks so much. This was a great pleasure. That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better, Live More podcast. How was that for you? Did you enjoy it? Were you surprised by what you heard? I totally appreciate that there were less take-home actual tips in this conversation than in my usual ones, but I hope you got value from it nonetheless. I really do think that we are at the beginning of a revolution in understanding how our minds really work. I think that this is a super important topic to be talking about. And what I love about doing my podcast is that I can talk to guests about topics like this one and communicate this information directly to my listeners. As always, but particularly with this episode, please do let Michael and myself know what you thought of the show today by letting us know on social media. Michael is on Twitter at Michael Pollan, and I am on the same platform at Dr. Chatterjee UK, as well as Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Chatterjee. Please do use the hashtag FBLM so that we can keep this conversation going and that I can easily see your comments. The more you talk about it on social media, the more you help to amplify the reach of what I think is an incredibly important yet under-discussed topic. Feel free to take a screenshot of this episode right now and share it with your friends and family on social media. Everything that Michael and I discussed today will be on the show notes page for this episode, which is drchastity.com forward slash change your mind. Here, you'll find articles on the latest research, helpful resources, and links to Michael's books and websites. So do check it out if you wish to continue your learning experience now that the podcast is over. I just want to reiterate that the use of psychedelic drugs is currently illegal and that the research, whilst promising, is still in its infancy and what we really need is more large-scale studies. I also want to emphasize that the content in this podcast is not intended to constitute or be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of a healthcare professional with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. As Michael mentioned, the regular practice of meditation is another way to change your mind and access an altered perspective on your everyday life. And this is just a quick reminder that one of the world's most popular meditation apps, Calm, are sponsoring today's show and have got a great offer for my listeners right now you can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash live more. So if you have been sitting on the fence about meditation, it could be a great way to get started. On today's show, we discuss mental health problems a lot. And as you well know, we are facing a mental health crisis at the moment. 
my latest book, The Stress Solution, is full of simple and actionable tips on how you can lower your own stress levels and live a happier and calmer life. There have been over 150 reviews so far on Amazon with an incredible average rating of 4.9 out of 5 stars. So if you feel that you would benefit or that you know someone who might, please do consider picking up a copy. The Stress Solution is available on paperback, ebook, and as an audiobook, which I am narrating. If you enjoy my weekly shows, please do consider supporting them by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. You can also help me spread the word by taking a screenshot right now and sharing with your friends and family on your social media channels. Or you can do it the good old-fashioned way and simply tell your friends and family about the show. I really do appreciate your support. One more request. I'm feeling a little bit overloaded at the moment with the amounts that I have on. So I'm looking to expand my team so that I can keep producing content and get my message out to as many people as possible. I'm looking for a videographer who might be interested in helping me video my podcasts and do some social media videos. Ideally, this videographer would be someone who lives in the northwest of England, but that is not an absolute requirement. I'm also on the lookout for a copywriter to help me with a variety of projects. If you are a fan of the podcast and want to help me reach more people with my message, do send a brief email to info at drchatterjee.com. I hope to hear from you soon. A big thank you to Richard Hughes for editing and Vidata Chatterjee for producing this week's podcast. That is it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure that you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back in one week's time with my latest episodes. Remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes is always worth it because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time. Thank you.